Hello and welcome back to the workbench. This is where we discuss ceiling fan history, trivia, and technical information. Today we're going to talk about a topic I've had in my back pocket for quite some time. We're going to talk about lawsuits involving ceiling fan companies. Um, here's a little bit of the genesis of this topic. So when I did my video on Homestead, I noticed that the Casablanca Wikipedia page had mention of a lawsuit involving Homestead. Never heard that before, couldn't find any other information about it online. I asked around, nobody else knew anything, nobody who knew who made that edit to Wikipedia. So, I got a subscription to an online law library that is normally used by uh, lawyers and researchers researching case law. And I searched every case that I could find looking for something with Homestead. There's absolutely nothing on the record involving Homestead. So, uh, while I had that subscription, I decided to look up every other case involving ceiling fan manufacturers, or at least vintage ceiling fan manufacturers, because I think we're going to go through the 90s, and as usual with these videos, we're going to stop around the year 2000. So, I've made mention here of every case involving a ceiling fan manufacturer that I could find during the vintage era. A couple caveats. One is I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a, a law researcher, paralegal judge anything else like that. So if I misunderstand any of this case law, I apologize. Second of all, we're not going to cover uh, criminal cases. We're not going to cover anything that doesn't actually involve a ceiling fan manufacturer because the vast majority of lawsuits involving ceiling fans were between like homeowners, contractors, businesses, things like that. It was really just, you know, fan wasn't installed, fan was improperly installed. Um, ordered fans, they weren't delivered, etc., and they really didn't have anything to do with any names of ceiling fans that we might recognize. So there is one exception to that, though, and at the end of the video, we're going to talk about it, and I promise if you stick it out to the end, it's worth it. So let's start. The first case I could find involving a ceiling fan company was from 1982, Flambeau Products Corp. versus Georgetown Fan Company. If you're not familiar with Georgetown Fan Company, they made those gear-driven things that look kind of like a heat cycler. They're all plastic. They were made about an hour from where I live in Baraboo, Wisconsin. Uh, pretty poor quality, but people still loved them. People bought a lot of them, and the company went out of business because they couldn't make them fast enough to fulfill all the orders that they were getting. So they're having a lot of issue with products not being delivered. And that's what this lawsuit is about. They were sued because Flambeau Products Corp. had bought two separate orders of 5,000 fans each, and they didn't get either one. And since the company had failed by then, the president of the company, Mark A. Hogan, was held personally liable. Okay, 1983. Fanfare Incorporated versus Fordell Industries Limited. Fanfare was a company that made wood ceiling fan blades. That's all they made, just the blades, not any other parts. And they had bought paint machines for the purpose of painting wooden fan blades. Uh, however, the machines were unable to paint wood. And so they sued because they believed that they were misled and it was fraud. And uh, they lost that case. They, were found that they did not do their due diligence. They were not misled. Um, they just simply bought the wrong machines. 1984. This is a case we have mentioned before. It's a, a rather talked about case. Gulf Coast Fans Incorporated versus Midwest Electronics Importers for Breach of Contract. So if you go back to my video on Dinway, you may remember Dinway was originally the sole supplier for Gulf Coast Fans. And it went from Dinway doing business as Demco 
through an exporter called PAX, P-A-X, through an importer called Midwest Electronics, and the end company was Gulf Coast. So there were four parties involved in getting those fans from the factory to the name who was actually on the fans, and that was even before Dan's Fan City. Um, and they had an, an exclusivity clause in their contract. They were going to be the only suppliers of those fans. Those four companies would be the only companies that supplied Gulf Coast fans in that order. And Gulf Coast fans changed hands a few times, and there was a new owner around 78, if I recall correctly, who decided he just he didn't want to honor that original contract for a few reasons. One was that they were not unlike the first case we talked about. They were selling fans faster than they can get them from the factory, and so they needed to get them from multiple factories in order to fulfill their orders. Also, he wanted to find ways to make them cheaper and, and stuff like that. And one of the things that he did to make them cheaper is rather than importing steel down rods from the factory, he started providing his own plastic down rods here in the U.S. Now, you can imagine a plastic down rod on a ceiling fan is not a great idea. And the fans started falling, the down rods started breaking. Um, and so the other parties in that company that were, you know, providing the fans along the way were like, wait a second, our name is associated with these fans, but we have nothing to do with these down rods. So that was an issue in the case as well. There was almost a recall. We're going to talk about recalls in a later video. They ended up avoiding a recall, but there were examples of them falling, including one at an airport in Florida that fell on a customer. So this all culminated in a lawsuit in 1984, and it was basically the issue of the lawsuit was who breached the contract. And the court found that Gulf Coast breached the contract first by changing the down rods. So that's 1984. Also in 1984, Casablanca Fan Company sues Tandy Corporation, the parent company of Radio Shack, claiming that Tandy was selling fans represented as made by Casablanca. Tandy claimed they had no knowledge of their stores doing such. As a result of the lawsuit, Tandy was prohibited from using the terms Casablanca, Casa, or CS. Casablanca did not ask for a monetary judgment. So this case is really interesting to me because I had no idea that Tandy sold fans. I had no idea that Radio Shack sold fans, although it's possible that they weren't sold in Radio Shack stores. They were sold in other stores that Tandy owned. Um, but what Tandy claimed in the lawsuit was that, you know, we don't know anything about this. Maybe our salesmen are just saying, you know, that these are Casablanca fans, but it's got nothing to do with us. I remember going to a Radio Shack in the 90s, and uh, the salesmen there were all, would all say that, like, their microphones were made by Shure, which in some cases they were, some cases they weren't. Their uh, stereos were made by Pioneer. Again, in some cases they were, some cases they weren't. But the salesman would definitely tell you that the realistic Radio Shack Tandy branded products were made by these famous companies. That was a whole big part of the Radio Shack's thing. So this is totally believable. I'm going to do some more research into this because now I'm very curious. Which Tandy stores sold fans? What fans did they sell? And if Casablanca didn't make them, who made them? And uh, what were they sold as, you know? So uh, I'll be hopefully doing a workbench video on that in the future, or at least mentioning it in a future video. Here's another really good case. 1985, Quizelle versus Moss. This is not the first time we're going to see, or, or not the last time we're going to see Moss mentioned, although this is the only time a David Moss is party to a lawsuit, surprisingly. David Moss copied Quizelle's lighted housing designs, which I think we all know. We've all seen a bunch of different imported lighting housing fans that have the same similar kind of floral styles like the original Quizelle Abigail Adams 
Vandaliers. Um, again, we can talk about that in the Quizelle video if you want to go back to that. Um, but yeah, a lot of import companies um, made those, and some of them were sold as Moss. But David Moss not only copied the designs from Quizelle, but then he would use pictures of actual Quizelle fans in his advertising. So you would see pictures of actual Quizelle fans labeled Moss, and David Moss would be distributing these to, you know, his 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 salespeople and everything like that, people who were buying the fans. Um, and it was a picture of a Quizelle fan, but then you order it and you get a Moss fan, which is similar because he knocked off Quizelle's design. Um, and he had the balls to counterclaim that Quizelle's patent was invalid. And the case was such a clusterfuck that his own lawyers quit in the middle of it. That was 1985. Also in 1985, Stevenson versus Emerson Electric Corp. So this refers to a criminal case, but this is actually a civil case. Arthur Stevenson was an Emerson employee. He had several shipments of fans delivered to his home. He was charged with receiving stolen goods, which is a criminal case. He then turned around and sued Emerson for malicious prosecution. And of course, he lost that case. 1986. David Kraft Corporation sued Power Lins Enterprise Co. Ltd., KM Industrial Corp., and Joe Tung. And the banks are also involved. So one of the things you see in a lot of these cases is a lot of times if somebody's buying a shipment of ceiling fans to resell, whether they're buying from an American factory or a Hong Kong factory, Taiwan factory, etc., a lot of times they might be buying them on credit, and so the banks get involved in the lawsuits because they didn't actually pay the money, the bank did. And a lot of times, if a shipment is lost or damaged or stolen, the insurance companies will get involved because somebody files an insurance claim. So you're going to see in a lot of these cases that the banks and insurance companies are party to the lawsuits or sometimes the ones doing the suing. Uh, so what happened here was David Kraft imported 7,200 fans from Taiwan and they received 493 fans, which is a lot less than 7,200, and 1,800 and 27 empty boxes, which is still a lot less than 7,200. And as a result of the case, the bank was not obligated to honor the demand for payment. So in other words, they bought the fans on credit, they didn't receive them, and so they ended up not having to pay. 1987, Encon Industries versus Heritage. Now we're going to see Encon in these cases a lot, but this is the uh, only one that involves technically a competitor, but if you remember from both the Encon video and the Heritage video, Heritage started out under Encon. One of their employees left and started Heritage using Encon products and reselling them as Heritage. And apparently, he must not have paid for all those because he was sued for payment of Encon fans that were sold in 1982. The lawsuit was decided in 1987. Encon won the case. They won their judgment, not surprisingly. 1988, Casablanca is again suing for trademark infringement. In this case, they're suing, of all people, John Menard, Menards Incorporated. Menards apparently made a knockoff of the Casablanca Spirit of Saturn that was so good, Casablanca sued for trademark infringement. And I'm really curious about this because we've seen a lot of Saturn knockoffs. This is the only one that ended up in court. I want to know what was so great about Menards' Saturn knockoff for it to be a court case. Um... As a result of the case, Menards was banned from selling their Saturn copy. Once again, Casablanca did not ask for a monetary judgment. They apparently weren't suing for money. 
in, in either of these cases, they just wanted people to not use their designs and trademarks. 1989, Moss is in the courts again, this time with CEO Monroe Zalkin, who claims the government's appraisal of their imports was unfair. The case was dismissed. My personal read of this is that, you know, Moss was kind of failing by this time, and this was kind of a last-ditch effort to try to increase their profits by decreasing what they would have to pay tariffs on their import goods. So that was 89. Also in 89, Pay and Pack, which was a, a, a discount store, a big box store, sued Fan Factory. Or more accurately, they ended up in court. This is an appeals case, I think. Uh, so what happened was... Pay and Pack had a vacant store they'd moved to another location, and they were leasing out the vacant store to other tenants. One of those tenants wanted to sublease to Fan Factory. And Pay and Pack said, hey, hold up here. We sell ceiling fans. We're not going to let you lease our property to one of our competitors. So the tenants sued Pay and Pack for breach of contract. Pay and Pack appealed, and they ended up winning on appeal. That's 1989. Also in 1989, here's another interesting one. Spangle versus Tacony Corp. Jerry and Francis Spangle bought a ceiling fan made by Ming Ta and imported by Tacony. After Jerry Spangle installed the fan in the Spangles' home, it fell on Francis Spangle and seriously injured her. The Spangles then sued Ming Ta and Tacony. Tacony countersued Jerry Spangle. The jury found Ming Ta and Tacony liable for Francis Spangle's injuries. I have a lot of questions here. First of all, this is possibly, I think, the only time we have a consumer in court suing the manufacturer. That doesn't seem to happen very much. Um, who's Ming Ta? Never heard of them. They're listed in the case as being the, you know, the company that made the fan in Taiwan. But... Um, a lot of times it's an importer, exporter posing as the factory, and they're not actually the factory. So I, I'm curious who made the, who actually made the fan. Um, why did it fall? The case law that I read didn't say there's no recall on any Tacony fans. So wouldn't it have been improperly installed? Like most of the time if a ceiling fan falls, it's not an issue with the fan itself unless there's a widely known issue that ends up in a recall. By the way, we're going to do a whole workbench video on recalls. So um, is this an issue where the jury just basically you know, made a, an unscientific decision based maybe on sympathy? I don't know. Uh, I have questions, um, but they weren't answered in the case law. So uh, that's like I said, that's a particularly interesting case. That brings us to 1990, Classic Concepts Incorporated versus Poland. This case was regarding insurance paydouts that were made for a shipment of stolen fans. There's a couple different ways that this case could be interpreted, just looking at the case law that exists. At worst, there was some insurance fraud involved. More likely, it was just an issue where the fans were legitimately stolen. Um, the insurance company paid the claim and then went to go to try to recover some of their losses. Also in 1990, Moss is back in court again. This time they are once again suing the United States, trying to claim certain payments that they made were exempt from customs duties. Basically, you know, there's a whole lot of taxes and fees and things that are involved when you're bringing goods in from other countries. And um, they were trying to claim that some of the money that they spent was exempt 
from these taxes and fees because they spend it on certain business uh, expenses, like entertaining customers, was one mentioned in the lawsuit. So I kind of wonder what that was about. But this again, this wasn't David Moss. This was his successor. So, but then again, he was a friend of David Moss, or at least at one time. So he had to be an interesting guy as well. Anyhow, they lost that case as usual. Uh, there are several times where manufacturers sue the government, and I will go through the whole list here. I can't. I don't think anybody ever won. Let's find out. Also in 1990, Rickle Home Centers versus various importers. I've never heard of Rickle Home Centers. It may be worth researching. Uh, they imported a whole bunch of fans from a bunch of different importers. Uh, they all came over together on the same shipment. Uh, shipment was full of water. Clearly, there was a leak somewhere because all the fan boxes were full of water. Their insurance company paid for the damage, and so the insurance company sued with the home center as a you know party to the lawsuit and was trying to recover from the various different importers, and they did end up winning that case. Here's another interesting one, also 1990. Hayes versus Evergo Telephone Company. Hayes was a guy that was injured by an Evergo telephone. And uh, I don't know where the telephone was sold. It wasn't in North Carolina. He sued in North Carolina, and so it ended up being crucial to the case that Evergo had a presence in North Carolina selling ceiling fans because otherwise he would have lost the case. He ended up winning $8,000, which is not a whole lot of money. Last one, no, not the last one, penultimate one for 1990. This one's a little interesting. Um, a ceiling fan company isn't directly involved in the lawsuit, but they are involved in the history of the lawsuit. I thought it was worth bringing up. Um, in 1990, National Metal Finishing Company versus Barclays American Commercial. In March of 1981, National began plating and finishing ceiling fan parts for Las Brisas. You guys have probably heard of Las Brisas. Uh, at roughly the same time, in an unrelated arrangement, Barclays and Las Brisas entered into a written factoring agreement where Las Brisas would assign the accounts receivable from its fan sales to Barclays, and Barclays would advance cash to Las Brisas against the accounts receivable as they were assigned. So basically, this was two different companies that were doing business with a fan company that ended up doing business together as a result of that. One of them owed the other one money. Barclays ended up winning the money they were owed. Okay, now this is the last one for 1990. This is another interesting one. Markowitz v. Home Depot. You may remember Richard Markowitz as the founder of Key Largo, but Key Largo was out of business by 85-86. So, what happened was, there were some Key Largo fans that had a defective mounting bracket. There was a recall. They were sold, among other places, through Home Depot. Home Depot then continued selling those fans under their own name uh, and under the names Saf, Homer, and I think one other name. We'll talk about this in the recalls uh, video. And I think I already covered it in the Key Largo video as well. But Home Depot kept on selling those fans after Key Largo went out of business. So... A customer sued Home Depot after a fan fell on her, and Home Depot then sued Richard Markowitz to recover because Key Largo was out of business. And inexplicably, Home Depot won. Okay, now we're on to 1990. Abart Electric Supply versus Emerson Electric Company. Abart submitted a purchase order for Emerson fans. Emerson declined their purchase order and ended up selling fans to a competitor of theirs. Uh, so Abart was claiming that 
Emerson breached their contract by selling to his competitor. But he didn't actually have a contract. All he did was submit a purchase order, and that's, you know, they had, they had no obligation to honor his purchase order. So this case was considered frivolous, and not only did he lose, but his lawyers were sanctioned. 1992, NCON's back in court suing the United States. So what happened was there was an international trade commission uh, uh, that had a committee with different fan manufacturers there, and they came up with a report called Sealing Fans from the People's Republic of China. I think we've talked about this report before. It'll come up a lot. Um, we definitely talked about it in the definition of an industrial video. So basically this was a commission with representatives from the government coming together with representatives from various fan companies trying to figure out what's the fairest way to deal with U.S. companies importing ceiling fans from China. And uh, they made a decision, and the decision was highlighted in the report called Ceiling Fans from the People's Republic of China. That report is online. It's available on government websites. It's still valid, I believe. Um, but NCON was not happy with the way it was decided. Uh, they felt that there were import duties that were favorable to LASCO because LASCO was the only low-end manufacturer that imported parts and assembled here, as opposed to having everything assembled in China. NCON lost that suit. Also in 1992, LASCO sued the International Trade Commission over the same report, even though the report NCON was claiming was too favorable to LASCO, LASCO was claiming it wasn't favorable enough to LASCO. That decision was sustained. 1994, Beverly Hills Fan Company versus Royal Sovereign Corp. By the way, I've got a workbench video planned on Beverly Hills. I've just There's some really interesting questions I've been trying to answer before I do that video. I have not been able to get an answer to all of those questions. If I can't hear, you know, get in touch with certain people that will answer those questions, then I'll do the video with the questions outstanding, but I haven't given up yet. So look forward to that video. It's going to be one of the more interesting workbench videos, even if the questions aren't answered. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. So, 1994, Beverly Hills Fan Company sues Royal Sovereign Corp. for copying one of their designs. Beverly Hills ended up winning on appeal. Also in 1994, NCON sues the United States again, again over the same report, the International Trade Commission report entitled Sealing Fans from the People's Republic of China. The U.S. countered that NCON did not participate in the project, and they could have. The case was dismissed. And that's true. They, you know, ceiling fan companies were encouraged to participate in the committee that resulted in that report, and NCON did not. In 1994, LASCO, again, sues over the same report. Loses again. Okay. So here's an interesting one, kind of a big one. And uh, I've got a lot more stuff written down here because I don't know how to talk about this one without going into a lot of detail. I know this is going to be interesting to a lot of people because a lot of collectors really care about Casablanca. So this is 1995, Paracore Finance Incorporated versus GE Capital Corp., Jordan Schnitzer, Burton Burton, and Jerry Holland. Jordan Schnitzer, a Portland businessman, hired Bear Stearns & Company to locate a profitable corporation that he could purchase and merge with his unprofitable corporation that he already owned in order to obtain tax benefits. He was directed to Casablanca Industries Incorporated, a California manufacturer of ceiling fans. In December of 1988, Schnitzer approached General Electric Capital Corporation for financing for a leveraged 
forced buyout of Casablanca. GE Capital agreed to provide a loan for the acquisition. By June, Schnitzer had successfully completed his offer and merged his corporation with Casablanca. In the interim, Casablanca's fortunes had been declining. Casablanca's April sales were only $7.88 million compared with the projections of $10.195 million. May and June sales were also below projections. During this time, Burton Burton was the CEO of Casablanca and Jerry Holland was the president. Casablanca filed for bankruptcy a little over a year later in November of 1990. The claim is that GE Capital knew of Casablanca's poor quarterly sales results and failed to disclose them. And so, going back to the start of this, I want to point out the plaintiff is Paracore Finance, and they were suing collectively GE Capital, you know, the, the, the company that owned and financed Casablanca and the buyout and everything like that, Jordan Snitcher, the guy that did the buyout, Burton Burton, the uh, uh, president of Casablanca, no, the uh, uh, CEO of Casablanca, and Jerry Holland, the president of Casablanca. The finance company sued everybody involved. And that's essentially because the finance company were the investors that were unhappy with, you know, their stock market performance. They were losing money on their investment. This is why I am not a big fan of the stock market. This is why I'm not a big fan of unregulated capitalism uh, because essentially there was nothing in this at all about ceiling fans, about whether or not Casablanca was making quality ceiling fans. And they were, you know, still making millions of dollars in profits, but they were below projections. And that's enough to tank the company to the point where not only do they file for bankruptcy, but the investors sue. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to spend too much time on that soapbox, but I think this case is a perfect example of, of like I said, what's wrong with uh, unregulated capitalism, because this was not good for Casablanca, not good for ceiling fans, not good for their customers. And But the good news is that the investors lost on everything but a technicality. They won on a technicality, but they lost on everything else, and they did not recover anything. And the uh, statement... Uh, that the court made was that general predictions were not actionable misrepresentations. Okay, here's the last one before we get to the fun at the end. 1997. Emerson Electric Company sues Encon. Emerson alleges that Encon infringed on their patented three-speed control system. Emerson won. I'm very curious about this case as well, because lots of companies had three-speed controls. So what was specific... The only Encon, or excuse me, the only Emerson three-speed control that I know that's been patented is the one that was specifically used where they had a, a, a dual coil motor and then a capacitor and a switch housing with a bleed resistor. You see it in, in, in all Emerson fans, and they did patent that. Um, but what did Encon use that was similar enough to, you know, infringe on their patent that um, the other companies didn't? I don't know. The case law doesn't get into it. It gets into the legalese, but not the technicalese. So that's another one I'm curious about. Okay, so here's your present for sticking it out with me here. 30 minutes. This is the only criminal case that we're going to talk about besides the one that was part of a civil case. This is the only one that doesn't involve a manufacturer. This is just too much fun not to mention. This is a federal criminal case 
the United States versus Nichols. When it says United States versus, that's federal. If it was like the state of Wisconsin versus, that would be a, a you know state. It can be the city of Madison or the county of Dane. Those are all the places I live. But this, because it's the state, meaning the United States, is the uh, um, versus, you know, it's a federal criminal case. In April and May of 1978, the defendants conspired to stage a fake accident at Bananas Cafe in Dallas. Michael Ford, working under the assumed name of L.D. Hoffer, and co-defendant Mike Merritt orchestrated the scheme. Co-defendant Carl Keenan, a bartender at the cafe, was the inside man. Co-defendant Tom Davis was to be an injured customer. Appellant Rhea Lucky Nichols, a medical doctor, was to handle the medical aspects, and co-defendant John Fisher, an attorney, was to handle the legal aspects. The genesis of the scheme was April 1978 when Ford noticed that the ceiling fans at the cafe wobbled when turned on. Over the next few weeks, Ford, Merritt, Keenan, and Davis discussed the possibility of staging an accident involving a ceiling fan. Early in the morning of May 23, 1978, Keenan unlocked the cafe and Ford, Merritt, and Davis entered. They removed one of the fans and stashed it away unobtrusively. The four then left the cafe. A few minutes before the cafe opened for business, Keenan again admitted Ford, Merritt, and Davis. They sat at a table underneath the mounting fixture of the now-detached ceiling fan, and Keenan served them drinks. At an opportune moment, when the room of the cafe was deserted, Ford retrieved the detached ceiling fan and slammed it down on the table where they were sitting. Davis and Merritt lay on the floor as if in pain. To add authenticity, Ford hit Davis in the back to make a bruise and cut his coat with a pocket knife. Keenan called a waitress who called an ambulance. Davis was taken to a hospital emergency room and Merritt followed in his car. Both were treated and released. The next morning, Merritt, Davis, and Ford and Fisher met at Merritt's auto garage. Ford called Dr. Nichols, arranged an appointment, and verified the symptoms Davis was to allege. Davis saw Dr. Nichols and was given a series of x-rays and heat and sonic treatment. Davis returned to Dr. Nichols two or three more times. The clinic records for Davis's visit were unusual. They were in Nichols' handwriting and showed 35 visits, contrary to Davis's testimony that he went to the clinic at most four times. The patient chart Nichols made also showed several prescriptions for Darwin through the clinic's Darwin book, which was a record of all Darwin prescriptions dispensed, yet it showed only one. Finally, the records and billing were all segregated from the clinic's usual billing procedures. Following his medical treatment, Davis, with the aid of Ford, Fisher, and Merritt, filed a claim against the cafe's insurance carrier. When the carrier contested the claim, Davis filed suit. It was in the prosecution of this claim that Davis's insurance carrier and its attorneys mailed the fraudulent documents that were the basis of the mail fraud charges. Apparently, during the pendency of this suit, Keenan and Davis were caught in an unrelated fraud scheme. They, were, they had another fraud going on at the same time. They cooperated with the government, led the postal inspectors to this scheme, and the inspectors move in. So then that's turned into mail fraud. Merritt escaped and was at large during the time of the trial. Keenan and Davis pleaded guilty and testified for the government. Fisher's case was severed so he could undergo an examination to determine his competency to, competency to stand trial 
He later pleaded guilty to conspiracy. Ford and Nichols were tried before a jury and convicted. Nichols was sentenced to concurrent terms of three years on all 15 counts. Ford was sentenced to consecutive terms of five years on the first eight mail fraud counts and concurrent terms of five years on the remaining seven counts for a total sentence of 40 years. Okay, I hope you found that as interesting as I did. Um, I love that as a result of these cases, we have several new topics to follow up on. I hope you'll stick it out with me and um, check those out when those go up. In the meantime, please continue to like, comment, and subscribe. Please continue to listen to this on podcasting platforms. And as always, you can support our sponsors. Uh, and one way that you can do that is to continue to buy Fanstick. Thanks for watching.